So, so we took it to the higher court and it took, it took a long time. I, I, I think it's, it was a, it was over a year um, that it took in order to go through the um, appellate court and it was very expensive. But um, I, this was so traumatic to me and so important for my mental health that I, I wanted to go forward with it. And so when we, when my attorneys wrote, and at this point I had, it had gotten so complex that I had, I had hired, I had a, a, a team of attorneys at this point. I had um, somebody who was a cyber attorney who actually works for the military and the government um, who took a look at my case and found it very interesting and felt that I really needed to go with a local trial lawyer. And so I, I took his advice and I hired uh, Lewis and Roca, and, which is a national law firm. And, um, and so then they went forward with the appeal. They, it, there was a, it was an amicable transition from Mink, which does more, you know, defamation online. It could be, um, it could be doctors or um, other trades, but it's also personal or celebrities as well. And um, this was a case on, that had not really, it was, it was so extensive, it was unlike any other. So I, I went with this local firm. And so we went forward with the appeal and the two questions, so you, when, you, when you go forward with an appeal, you basically have to ask, did the court err? Did they make an error in what the way they decided the, the case? So we had two questions. The first one was, did the trial court err in granting the quash motion based on the statute of limitations being one year as only two of the 32 reviews would qualify for unmasking. Right. And the answer to that was yes, they, they felt that the court, trial court did err. And then the second one was, did the trial court err in granting the quash motion on the basis that the negative reviews were statement of opinions that could, su that could support plaintiff's claim, claim of, claims of defamation? So they were opinions as opposed to facts. And, um, and the answer was yes. So the trial court had erred. So I won the appeal. And that's how you, Dr. Siegel, and I got connected is when you saw, I think you saw that article. When I saw the, the appeal and your victory in there, there were a couple of points in there that I thought I took out of it that I found amazingly interesting. I had always been led to believe that if a cyber mob comes after you and you have 24 negative reviews, but they're nothing more than one star ratings, I had assumed that the fact that there's no content in there, that if it's really a rating and not a review, would make it very difficult to sue for defamation. And it sounds like one of the article, one of the arguments that was very interesting was that um, the the default assumption is that one patient is posting a review, and it's just a single patient. I mean, that is what a reasonable um, observer would conclude, but it seemed like one of the arguments was that if one person is posting multiple times using, you know, multiple anonymouses and they're just posting, um, they're posting just one star reviews, that that is a false statement because the assumption is that it's just one patient, one, one rating, one patient, one rating. But right. if it's, if it's many, if, if it's one patient, that appears to be many patients, that that could be construed as a false statement, a false Correct. statement. And so it's an amazing leap to be able to do that. And I would say you got a real win out of that because that is not 
something that many judges would conclude. Um, although I think it's a reasonable conclusion. I think it makes complete sense because um, if you're posting, you know, five different times, if one individual is posting five different times as five different patients, um, then they're occupying a lot of this space. And that in and of itself is a falsehood because you would assume these are five different patients, but it's really just right. one patient that's pissed off. It's one patient pissed off five times as opposed to five patients pissed off five times. And that is Correct. false. So that's interesting. The other conclusion that I also found interesting was that you were limited in your claims because, or you limited your claims because you didn't look back to the very beginning. And so one of the arguments or the defenses they tried to make was that, well, you already had a bad reputation online. So we, you know, even if you believe that these are false statements that injure reputation, your reputation is already bad. We can't make it any worse. Correct. And yeah, and this is fascinating because it's a type of argument that has only been used for criminals. You know, Correct. meaning that you know yes. Hitler, we can't we can't injure Hitler's reputation because Hitler already had a bad reputation. Correct. Or John Gotti. Oh, sorry. Are, yeah, it's called the libel proof plaintiff doctrine. Which so repeat know, that again. Repeat that again. It's called it, the libel proof plaintiff doctrine. The it's liable still, proof, meaning that they're they're so they're so bad you can't you can't defame them. <laughs> yeah, it precludes a plaintiff's recovery for libel if his or her reputation up, up to the time of the challenge publication has been irreparably strained by prior publications. It's a case. Um, it's called Tonneson versus Denver Public uh, Company, and it was in 2000. It was Colorado Appeals. Anyway, so that was and this. This doctrine has been widely criticized um, when it is applied because, as you had just stated, it's more often used in cases involving criminal convictions. But it's really rich in this particular case because the people who are trying to use it um, very likely are the people who are defaming you in the first place. Correct. And I, mean, I don't know that, but I'm guessing that's the case. Well, that was the opinion in the Court of Appeals is that it's likely that those people were. And we know that because Vitals told me that. Vitals told me that it was the same IP addresses going all the way back. But that John Doe's attorneys did not know that because they did not see or talk to Vitals about this. That was privileged for me. Um, so they didn't realize that I had that information. All right. But so anyway. you get a win. You get a win at the appellate level. And one would hope that if you win at the appellate level, it's over. But that's not how the game works. It basically no. says that based on the law, you win this particular argument. And then it goes yeah. back to the lower court, correct? Correct, it does. But I wanted to say something about the two the, the two things that, that we came to the appeal with. It was, you know, that first one was, you know, um, the statute of limitations. I wanted to have a little bit of a talk about that. They said that for a year, for um, for trade, it's one year. And so they argued that, that only two of the reviews were subject to the claim because those were within the last two years of discovery. The other ones were all prior. And the court actually came around and said that that the claim accrues on the date both the injury and its cause were known or should have been known to the plaintiffs, which was me, by the exercise of reasonable uh, diligence. And I learned about these reviews in September 2019. So mm -hmm. I had the to, the to the end of September 2020 to file such a claim. So it's really it was that cumulative. Um, damage that was done by multiple reviews, not just the two. And for that reason, I, I, you know, it was within a year that I knew. As soon as I knew, it was September 2019. I filed. I was well within the statute of limitations. So I this is an important point um, that yeah. 
many people don't appreciate because this whole notion of either new or should have known um, spills over to professional liability like medical malpractice. So if a person, so let we'll go to California for a moment in our brain. So California typically has a one-year statute of limitations from the date you knew or should have known about the injury. So if you go and have an appendectomy done in California and on post-op day one, you learn that, you know, some something horrible happened, the clock starts ticking right then and there. So you've got about one year. But let's say you don't really, you know, you don't really know what happened at that particular point. You only learn about it two years later. You know, the doctor typically thinks, oh man, I dodged a bullet. No problem there because it's beyond one year. But it's one year from the date you learned or should have reasonably learned of the particular problem. Now, I'll, I'll add some additional fudge factor here. It may also be, there. there's something also that puts a final limit on this, which in California may very well be, it's either one year from the date you uh, learned or should have learned about the injury, but in no case longer than three years. You know, there's a second statute called statute of repose, which kind of sets a final limit on this stuff. But when somebody reasonably learns about a particular problem is kind of, it's one of the the clocks that starts ticking. And here, because you did not know or you did not reasonably or, or you did not reasonably learn about this till, till you started looking. I mean, why would you look? You had no reason to look. Um, and so they gave you another nice little gift there. Right. So um, the other thing was the other thing was the whole interpretation as a fact, this whole statement of, of opinion. Um, and they're they're looking at the First Amendment with that. The First Amendment it, it states that statements of, of pure opinion are constitutionally protected and thus cannot support a libel or defamation claim. And um, and in order to be entitled to full constitutional protection, that statement must not contain a provably false factual con connotation, or if it does, it must not be such that it could be reasonably interpreted as stating actual facts. And so. The Court of Appeals on that concluded that the reviews could be interpreted to contain at least one statement that is sufficiently fact factual to be susceptible of being proved true or false, and that a most reasonable person could conclude that this is an assertion of fact. So, in other words, that's that's how the Court of Appeals ru they ruled that no, you're not constitutionally protected here with your right. statement. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because most people that are on the receiving end, their defendants in a defamation case, do cry, hey, look, it's just my opinion, just my opinion. Correct. And certainly, if you can allege and prove and argue that a reasonable person would construe it as a fact, a false statement of fact, then you should be within the door. Correct. And the the... One thing that you know we brought up, as well as the Court of Appeals, was that if these reviews that have been submitted by a patient, you know, that you know, what happens is when you submit these reviews, you have to check a little box that says, "I confirm that I am a verified patient of Dr. Schroeder's." And mm -hmm. if the patients were not, these supposed patients were not actually patients, they would not be protected. Correct. So you're asserting that you're a, a patient. I think it's implied that it's just one patient. And if you've got 25 different reviews that are up there, 
a reasonable person would conclude that there are 25 different patients up there, but you know, these were just a total of two patients. So, um, you still, so, okay. You still didn't get their names at that point. Um, you, you were were getting closer, but you didn't, you didn't get a chance to quite spike the football yet. No. And the one last thing that I wanted to say is you talked about those star ratings and that they, they couldn't really be statements because they were just star based ratings without Mm -hmm. any words. And they, and then, and that that's constitutionally protected expression of opinion. But if there's a series of dozens of reviews, and if each purports to have been submitted by different patients, that may communicate an objective, potentially false fact. So that's why they used those. They were, we were allowed to bring those, you know, nonverbal statements in. Yeah, I think the thing that was kind of interesting is because they ultimately were, um, they were a collection of two patients as opposed to, you know, 25 individual patients. I think the court was inclined to see it your way here. Correct. So All anyway, right. so going back Keep to going. So, yes. so then what you have to do is after the appeal was granted, we had to wait a month for, I think it's called a syncytium. It's what you were explaining before, Dr. Siegel, about how the other side had the opportunity to take it to a higher court. So we wanted to give them the 30 days to allow that to occur if it was to occur. But honestly, there were 19 arguments in my appeal. We did go to oral argument after the actual written appeal, before the appeal um, uh, opinion was was uh, grant was um, you know released. This and, is a commitment on both sides. Yeah. You know, once no. you're there, this is the cage fight. Oh yeah. So um, so there were arguments that were brought up. Um, while we were in front, you know, physically in front of the uh, Court of Appeals. And on all 19 of the arguments, the Court of Appeals came down on our side. So there was, it was very, they didn't have anything to go with. Even if they overturned a couple of the arguments, we still, you know, let's say they got three, we still had 16 in our favor. So we didn't think they were going to go forward with the syncytium, but nonetheless, we waited. So after that, there were a number of things that had to happen. There, the case had to be redocketed, and um, and then we had to go forward with the court to um, have subpoena again Comcast for release of the IP addresses. And did Comcast and so that, roll over and give you the names pretty quickly? They did. Yeah, we had to wait 21 days. There were some snafus with communications, but then we did get the the um, the names and. There and again, it was only the last four years. And there was a few that were not um, that were not. They may have been patients. I don't know. We found that 17 of the 32 reviews between 2015 to 2018 were for one individual, and 11 of the 32 reviews went to a person that was living um, at a it was like a 55 and older residence, senior housing, um, and. I'm just being careful here because I know that there are also HIPAA laws that are involved with this, and I can't, you know, I can't violate them even at this point. I've gone through that with my attorneys. Um, but one, to my surprise, the patient—it was a patient that wrote these for for eight years. Um, it was um, her husband that was fighting on her behalf. Um, those 17 of the 32 reviews, the first one that I'm talking about. And um, what is, 
you don't know, I know you and I have talked before, Mr. Siegel, but I don't <laughs> think you knew this part of it. Um, this, I filed this lawsuit in September. The subpoenas for the IP address information was released in October 2019. This patient died in December 2019. And so the, for the couple of months before she died, her husband hired the attorney and fought because she would just, it would just, you know, she'd be beside herself if her name was in the news. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of background on this patient if you'd like. It was, uh, would you like me to? Yeah, I'm assuming this is a person that had some means to be able to hire the attorneys to uh, go yeah. along in defense, correct? Yeah. Her husband has a big company in Colorado Springs. And she was a patient of mine from 2003 until 2010. I saw her 52 times. 51 of the times that I saw her were for cosmetic reasons. One of the visits was a medical one. And I thought you were gonna tell lot. me that. I thought you were gonna tell me she had a wart that kept growing larger and larger no. each time. No, I'm kidding. no, she didn't. She didn't have any of that. But she was a patient of mine, and she had a, a very strange. You know, I mean, obviously, I do a lot of cosmetics. I, I I had done Botox and filler and different energy devices, and you know, there's, you know, on this particular patient, and um. And there was a, a situation towards the end, obviously, where um, she came in for a uh, Botox treatment. And I had done that before. It was very run-of-the-mill, nothing fancy. And she saw that I had a special on a treatment called Thermage, which is a radio frequency tightening device. And this is back in 2010. Mm -hmm. And um, she, it was specifically for the eyes. You could do it for the whole face, but we had a special attachment we had bought that was just for the eyes. And she said, you know, would this be, do you think this, that I would benefit from this? And I said, yes, it's a subtle improvement. It's not a facelift or an eye lift, but yeah, I think you would benefit. So she wanted to do it. And I said, you know, I really don't feel comfortable doing it anytime. We have to wait at least a week before we do that. Um, I, I can't do it today, but I, you know, we could, I think we need to wait at least a week. And that's really contrary to common dermatologic procedure. I've talked to colleagues and I've actually brought this, um, this problem up in, com in conferences um, with a large group of people and people routine, dermatologists routinely do it on the same day without any problem. But for whatever reason, I wanted to wait a week. And so I did, and I did normal procedure, no, normal protocol. And a couple of days later, she had this very strange reaction where she, um, you know, one eyebrow would go up and the other would go down and one of her pupils would dilate, which I've never seen before. But my, my feeling is in retrospect now that, um, that the Botox had sat for seven days, but once I did the thermage, it caused some inflammation and I'm wondering if it pushed it to deeper levels, maybe the parasympathetic nervous system for the dilation. I don't know, but it was very, strange and very scary for both of us. And I thought maybe I had unmasked some underlying, you know, condition like myasthenia gravis. I had, I had no, um, I had no explanation for what happened and I supported her as best as I could, but she brought her husband in and just sort of was, you know, I refunded the money. I did whatever I could and she tried to sue me and she didn't get anywhere. And she also but did she end up going to a, an ophthalmologist, neuro ophthalmologist, or someone else, a neurologist, someone that could. Yep. 
And did they have an explanation for they this? Well, nobody really. And did it, as best you can tell, was it self-limited and ultimately yeah. improved? Yeah. Botox lasts three to four months at most. Right. And so when I think what happened is, is and again, I don't know this, but I just, logic would tell me that even though I waited the seven days, for whatever reason, that Botox, um, the neurotoxin was pushed maybe into deeper levels or with some of the inflammation. And, That's interesting. Uh, yeah, and I and I've brought it up since, and everybody looks at me with their mouth open. You may want to write it up just as an observation. Yeah, I may. Maybe I should. You may um, find more people have experienced something like that over time. Yeah. I'm not the only one. So anyway, right. so she sued you. So, it didn't, so it didn't go anywhere. Sue, nobody right. would take her case because. It's you know, there's no neg. I didn't do anything incorrectly. There was no negligence. It was just a, you know, and I followed protocols. And most people do it on the same day, as I was saying. It was just this was a fluke sort of reaction. I will never do a procedure on the same day again. But um, but back to uh, back to what happened. So she tried to litigate, but nobody would take her case. And then she also reported me to the medical board, but there was no negligence, and it was dismissed. And what I understand is she just decided she was going to ruin me. And so yeah. she wrote, you know, I know 32 reviews in four years and God knows how many before looks beforehand. Um, there was this other person that, that well, hang, uh, hang tight. I got, I have one question. When, yeah. when you were kind of going through this process, did you think she potentially was a candidate for the person that was writing on there, she, she didn't really seem like the type of individual that would be doing that. Although it sounds like she was hell bent on creating a problem in your life, suing you yeah. or trying to sue you, going to the board of medicine and, and so on. Right. And, you know, I mean, she had money. So, you know, for four, I, I think she was a person that, you know, in retrospect now, she's very nice as my patient. She obviously was very happy to come to me 52 times, you know, in in seven years. Um, we, I saw no problems. Usually, you know, I mean, you and I are both physicians. You could kind of tell if somebody's going to be a problem. At least if you've practiced for a number of years, you kind of get the gist of, you you know. Although every so often people slip through the door, right? Yeah, I know it happens. But, you know, this is, again, earlier in my career. And I didn't see it. She seemed sweet and cute and kind and um, and just uh, not an issue. But I, looking back at it, I think that she had insecurities. Um, I think she was very. She looked great. She didn't look overdone, in my opinion. But she um, uh, she was there. I guess a lot of her self worth was probably associated with her looks. For her to be that incensed about a short-term reaction, and I'm not. Was she elderly? Because um, you, you said no. she died. So she died. She died when she was 63. I don't consider. I think that's an early death. No, yeah, that. I agree and, with you. But here's why. Here's why I bring this up. Yeah. Do you know how she died? Do you have any idea? No, or you I, don't, I don't know. I think it's very strange that it was two months after I filed the lawsuit. Um, I know that there was, I looked at an obituary and it either said, it said you could make donations to, it was either breast cancer or ovarian cancer, some sort of organization like that. So I, that's what I assumed, but I don't know. I, it's. Let me throw like, out a crazy idea here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause um, we're, we're being super sleuths here. Yes. Um, there, there is one member of medical justice who had a, um, he does reconstructive work. Um, and he had a patient that loved him, said the work I did was excellent and she loved him. 
and fast forward down the road, she um, she stopped loving him. She she went online, sounded she sounded crazy actually, but um, she would not stop. Her job number one was to destroy this doctor's life. She would call the practice, she would email the practice, she wrote online, and. And finally, I asked him, I go, is it possible? Because it's so out of character for her. Is it, and I think he, had been, he was treating her for breast cancer. Is it possible that she has metastatic disease to the brain? I mean, meaning that, do you have any connection to the oncologist uh, or the primary care doctor where they could actually bring her in and scan her <clears throat> and say, to make a long story short, she did not have metastatic disease to the brain, but apparently doing a deeper dive on the records, she had a history of multiple sclerosis and she had a flare up in her frontal lobes with complete and total frontal lobe disinhibition. So there was an organic reason to, to, to cause some of the things that otherwise our, brain, our brains would veto. So I wonder, given that this individual passed away at a young age and it sounds like she may have died from cancer, um, but I mean, it sounds like she was writing over a longer period of time than just right. over a few months. So useful you know, I, to think I, about. We are doctors, so we, you know, we try to think, yeah. is there a organic reason for this? But sometimes it's just people are just nasty people. That's, that, like that's sometimes it's, yeah. it's sometimes <laughs> that is the, the explanation. Some, um, some people, one of, one of the, one of something that's close to me in my practice said, you know, it's kind of like single white female was she, you know, she just want to that kind of thing. I I don't know. She's married. I don't I don't know even too much about that movie. But women that admire somebody else and just become obsessed with them and then just become stalkers. I don't know. Um, the other the <laughs> other thing. Slippery slope. Yeah, and the other thing, and now we're we're just kind of spitballing. I heard my contractor, my building contractor, say that the other day. I thought that was kind of an, an interesting term. But you know. Her, her husband said that you know he spent a lot of money, a couple hundred grand to do this, okay, yeah. um, to defend her, um, you know, and and if she would have, she's so I guess insecure that you know she didn't want anybody to know, and she had to be portrayed a certain way to society. Um, was she so upset about this that she did something to end her life? I mean, I don't know. Whoa. That's a thought I had, you know, I, two months yeah. later when, after you find this, I mean, and somebody that's that insecure, I mean, maybe she was already sick and ended it. I don't know. I mean, and again, this is just, we're just spitballing. Um, no, her husband may know. A husband would know, wouldn't he? Yeah. He may know. So, yes. So, and then the other, but the other people, the other person that um, did the reviews what did the 11 out of 32 was an elderly woman that was 80 years old that was in a wheelchair i actually spoke to her daughter i she you know not to take up too much time but there for, for reasons that went on earlier on when the first set of releases came during the first motion to quash she wheeled herself down to the the attorney that was that was the conduit for mink mm -hmm and was completely bewildered and i think what happened and my attorneys think that too they look at the reviews it's very similar the same sort of star rating the same pattern of stars they feel that it was the same patient that did this all all along so, so just one patient not not no not one two patients. crazy patient that did this who is now deceased 
And so the so, question is, how did the second patient even get involved? How, how did Comcast deliver a, an address of somebody who was not, you know, not posting reviews? How did how did one person get access to someone else's account? Because, well, it was actually traced. It was actually the first patient's account. It was just because they were dynamic IP addresses uh, that during that period of time, for it was about two years, that patient was not it was a it was a gap it was um it showed I got up, it. came from that time and then it moved on and so it was reported as this elderly patient that i i had never even well not excuse me not a patient an elderly individual that i had never seen had no knowledge of her a stranger, at all yeah and yeah. a complete and total yeah. stranger to right. you and so yeah. they basically said hey i didn't do it and they were never a patient and so when you did a deeper dive it's possible that Comcast didn't quite <clears throat> get this correct, that ultimately it was one individual, not two. Right. All right, so um, we're, we're getting close on time. Yeah. It sounds like the case is not over yet, though, correct? It is over. It, it is. is over. Yeah, I hate to say it because what we did was, and I, you know, I, I honestly think that there's more to this story than meets the eye, and, and it's just more on a personal level what I have witnessed from certain individuals somewhat estranged from me the, their behavior they know a little too much but i can't prove that and what i would have to do to move forward is with this patient i would have to reopen probate estate on her in order mm -hmm. to get any claim and there's not going to be any money in there because there's going to be money that's distributed and her husband i believe has all the money anyway it's very expensive to do it's going to cost me a couple of hundred grand extra to do that um, which I've already spent, but, um, and really it's, it, if I, if I do that, I'm not really going to, there's not going to be any money in there. And so it, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do. The one thing I wanted to do was go forward with the estate, because I do think that this woman is somebody who is, um, is insecure and she seeks a lot of, um, Praise outwardly, and I, I feel like she was doing it for somebody else. I think that, that somebody else got a hold of her, and um, yes, she was unhappy, but this, the other people that really had it out for me, and this is maybe crazy, but that's what I think, um, uh, because she was a patient, she was allowed to post, and I think that that's one theory that I have. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to get her emails because I'm sure that if that was happening, I would be able to trace it back to whoever else was involved. Meaning and, that she may have gone to another practice and the other practice may want to, to have thrown you under the bus somehow and she became correct. a, a correct, participant in this process? Practice. I think it was ex-family members. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's this what is, it was. This, boy, this, this can serve as a, um, as a new podcast for Serial or a yeah, Netflix no. series. No, right. I it is. I I and you know without taking up a lot of time because that sounds far fetched, but there's been too many things. There are too too many other things that have we haven't spoken about that are. <laughs> it's hard to argue with, but I can't prove it. And the only way I could prove it is if I had the emails, the track back, or whatever else. And even if I did, let's say she, let's say that she was doing it for you know a. Um, wife of uh, of an ex-partner you know um 
that person would say, well, I, I didn't write those. I, you know, I didn't do the da damage. The person Plausible deniability. Yeah. So there's no way that I can really get anything. So I think at this point, I have to just let it go. And I hate to say that. No, you know, I get I'm it. I, I get it. Look, we all make decisions. Uh, we'd like to make optimal decisions, but we ha sometimes have to live with good decisions. And it's not like this is the only thing going on in your life. You have other right. things that are going on in your life. Right. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that when anyone's involved in litigation, it consumes you. There's just a lot of you know, it, beyond the money. It's just the amount of time and brain space that gets occupied. So, I look, I, I think you are to be given kudos for establishing binding precedent in an appellate court in a major state on some of the areas that I thought had already been settled law. So I think you basically updated the law for the 21st century. Good for you. I'm, I'm just glad that you did it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you're in a good space uh, right now. And I think you got answers to a lot. If not, you didn't get answers to all your questions, but you certainly got answers to a lot of your questions. And I think you're to be congratulated. Good Thank for you. you. Um, and you know, and you are an MD and a JD, and you may know this, but I unfortunately been around the block with law a lot. I had a tough divorce, a child custody case, and it just dragged drug on and on. And a lot of decisions that I wasn't happy with. It's funny how it works. Sometimes these things have a way of working themselves out eventually. And um, so I'm, I'm wondering if that will just, I think I, I'm done fighting this. I've, I've learned an awful lot um, and I've got the information, as much information as I can get. And uh, I think I need to let it rest and we'll see what happens. I'm so glad we got an opportunity to meet. So even though yeah. you had a challenging saga, um, I'm delighted that we had an opportunity to both meet and speak. And I think you're a dynamo and I hope you kick oh. ass in your new practice. Okay. Thank you so much. You have any final That's words fine. for us? How, maybe potentially how people can get in touch with you because they may have, uh, you sure. may be able to talk them into or out of litigation uh, going forward. So um, how do people find you? So you can email me at Schroeder at perfectskinderm.com. And that's S-T-H-R-O-E-D-E-R at perfectskinderm, amazonmother.com. I can give you an address too of my office if you want, but it's, you, we'll everything is We'll put it. We'll put all that in our show notes uh, sure. as as we launch. Anyway, Dr. Schroeder, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time from busy day to speak with us. We'll talk again. Sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, 
write to us at info news, that's I-N, Epperson Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.